Thank you. Please be seated. A couple of uh, quick things before we get started. want to welcome you if you're visiting and just draw your attention. There's a little welcome card in the rack in front of you. If you find that uh, and can fill that out for us, we'd love to know you're here with us and give us a chance to get to know you. And you can drop these in the box uh, along that back wall that's also the offering box. Um, but uh, so glad to have people joining us this morning. I want to make uh, a couple of comments about our upcoming all-church retreat to Sandy Island. That's coming up uh, September 9th through 11th. There's still time to register for that. Um, but two things I want to mention. First, if you, are, if you have genuinely placed your faith in Christ, but for whatever reason have not yet been baptized, Sandy Island is a great opportunity for you to think about doing that. Now, the water is not holier at Sandy Island. Uh, there's nothing special about the location. It's simply a chance for the people of God to rejoice in what God has done to rescue a sinner and, and redeem him to himself. And it's a chance for that person to give public testimony. So if you're interested in talking about being baptized up at Sandy Island, please grab me or Pastor Daggett, one of the elders, and let us know. The second thing, I wanted to let you know that our teaching time at Sandy Island is going to be focused on the question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Now, if you've been at Westgate for a while, I hope that you have picked up an increasing emphasis on the centrality of the gospel over the last few years. The good news of what God has done to accomplish his purposes and rescue his people from their sins through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That good news, we believe that good news ought to be, ought to change everything. It's the most significant thing about us. It should be for us, not merely the confessional center of our faith, so the heart of what we believe. It should also be the functional center of our lives. It should shape everything about how we live. But if that's going to be true, if we're going to be gospel-centered as a church and as individuals, we need to make sure we're not assuming the gospel. We need to make sure we understand what it is and that that's the thing that excites us more than anything else. It's very easy to assume the gospel. Yeah, we believe that and acknowledge that. But then we're really excited about what we're doing over here. When in reality, the gospel is the most important and exciting thing about the Christian life. It changes everything. What is that gospel? How is that the foundation and center of our lives? That's what we're going to be looking at at Sandy Island. So I'm very excited about that time. And I uh, encourage you, if uh, you want to find out more information about that retreat, there is some information in the, in the worship folder, uh, you can also find more online. But just wanted to draw your attention to those couple of things. Uh, go ahead and begin finding your way back to Psalm 33, and we're going to pray for our time together. Lord, we are so grateful for the privilege of gathering together, of opening your word, of hearing you speak through your word, and of being able to respond to you in prayer and in praise, in, in singing of how amazing you are. God, as we open your word right now, we pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts. We pray, Lord, that whatever distractions, uh, whatever um, baggage we have brought in here with us, you would give us the grace to lay it aside and to see you clearly and to be changed by your spirit as we gaze into your word. That's our prayer this morning. And so we ask that you would meet us and that you would be honored. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, if you're just joining us this summer, we have been looking at selections from Psalms 1 through 41 in a series that we've called Walking with God in the Meantime, the Christian Life Through the Lens of the Psalms. And again, the Psalms are hymns and songs and poems that we find in pretty much smack dab in the middle of our Bible in the Old Testament. And they teach us about walking with God in a broken world. So living in a, in a world between God's promises that he's going to deliver us and the promise of his rule and his kingdom, and yet where all of that has not yet been fully realized. And so we live in this meantime. And so we find psalms of lament, psalms that cry out to God about how messed up things are. We, we find psalms of instruction, psalms that help us learn how to live and walk in this world. And we find psalms of praise, psalms of thanksgiving, and that is what we have this morning in Psalm 33. And that's evident from the first three verses. Psalm 33, 1. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the ten-string lyre. Be interesting to see what that looks like back then. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. Psalm 33 picks up right where Psalm 32 left off last week. You notice some overlapping words in the last verse of Psalm 32. It picks up with a call to praise, a call to uh, lift our voices together to make much of God. Now, a few weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 8, and when we did that, we talked about how praise in the Psalms is almost always vocal, so it's something that we say. It's not just something we think, it's something we say. Almost always public, something we say to each other, and usually either declares what God is like or describes what he's done. So it is making much of God and his reputation. Um, that's the what of praise. We saw that in Psalm 8. The same is true of Psalm 33. The whom of praise, who gets the praise, uh, is the same as Psalm 8 as well in every other praise psalm. It's the Lord. The Lord, the the one true God of the universe who's made himself known to us in covenant with ancient Israel. He's made himself known preeminently through his son, Jesus Christ, and his incarnation. That one true God, he is the right object of our praise. Our praise is directed to the Lord. He's the whom. The who of praise. Who does the praising? Who does that? Here in Psalm 33 are the righteous or the upright which is shorthand here for God's covenant people. God is calling his covenant people to praise. Now, it's not saying that you have to be perfect, righteous and upright. It's not saying you have to be perfect for you to offer praise to God. That's not the point here. Rather, if you belong to God, if you are in right relationship with him as part of his covenant people, which is ultimately possible only through the cross and faith in Christ. We saw that last week in Psalm 32. So if you belong to God as his people, then you owe God your praise. Praise befits the upright. It's an appropriate response of God's people to God. That's who he's calling to praise. But when you, when you step back a moment and think about it, it's not just God's covenant people that belong to God. He made everything. This whole earth belongs to God. And so in reality... Everyone owes their praise to God. And later in the psalm, he makes that point in verse 8. Because God alone is the creator of the universe, everyone ultimately 
belongs to him and owes their life and existence to him and therefore also their praise. So the whom, uh, or excuse me, the who of praise is ultimately everyone, but especially the people of God. Now the how of praise in Psalm 33 is described quite colorfully. Sing joyfully. Use the harp. Break out the lyre, the ancient type of guitar. Sing a new song. So be creative. Be fresh. It doesn't mean we have to sing all, only songs that have never been sung before. But when we sing, whatever we sing, let it be fresh. Let it be meaningful, not rote and hollow and going through the motions. Sing creatively and meaningfully to the Lord. Play skillfully. Give God your best when you come before him. And don't be afraid to get loud. Loud shouts, it says here. We are making much of God in our praise, and that is fitting for the people of God. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Now, the idea of praise is not foreign to our culture. You pick up, you walk into Barnes & Noble, pick up any book off the shelf and turn it over. It is littered with praises for that author and his or her work. So we're very used to praise in our culture. You go to any stadium on any given day of the week, and you've got roaring fans making much of their favorite teams and their athletic prowess and superiority, or else roaring fans swooning over their favorite bands and whatnot. We're, we, are, as a culture, are very comfortable with praise. We have praise even in our homes. You know, uh, Mariah, as we're trying to work with her to get to the potty more often than not, we lavish her in praise when she actually uses it. We're, our home is filled with praise for those kinds of things. So praise is not uncommon. What's uncommon and strange, however, and what's so often missing in a culture saturated with praise, is the praise which is directed to the one person who deserves it infinitely above anyone else, and that's the Lord. There's a strange vacuum of praise to God. And I'm not talking about, you know, people just not showing up for church anymore. I'm talking about what's going on in our hearts and with our words even when we do show up for church. Even when we do. Where are our hearts focused? We, we don't have that big a problem telling somebody else how great they are or some other thing. I love Mountain Dew. I can sing the praises of Mountain Dew for quite some time. But why do we, and we certainly don't have a hard time receiving praise. We love being told how wonderful we are. Why do we have such a hard time giving God our praise, making much of him? That is tragically inappropriate, according to Psalm 33. Praise befits the upright. It's our proper and appropriate response. Yet we struggle. We, we deprive God of the praise due his name. We give his glory to something else to something less. And we have to ask the question, if that's happening, why? Why don't we praise God, and why should we? Why don't we praise God, and why should we? Why do I stand here in the pew some Sunday mornings, the music's going and people are singing, and I'm daydreaming. I'm thinking about my work schedule. I'm thinking about the argument I had last night. I'm thinking about the Red Sox game and do I have enough food for the people coming over. I'm thinking about all of these other things, but I'm not thinking about God. I'm, I'm, my mouth is going. You look at me, but what's going on in my heart? Maybe you're thinking about 
somebody else. Maybe, you know, uh, a guy or a girl over there. Why, why should I praise God when there's so much else that I can give my attention and affection to? Why should I praise God? Maybe I'm thinking about what other people are thinking about me. I have to venture that's a pretty common one. You know, my, my buddy here, he's not really singing. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't be singing. Maybe, maybe it's not cool to sing. What's he think if I, gonna, if I sing? What will he think of me? Uh, maybe, uh, maybe I'm thinking about other people and I'm disenchanted because when I look out, I see a bunch of hypocrites. I see people... They're, they're clapping, they're praising God, and, and they're making much of him and, and singing their little hearts out. But I know what they said last week. I know what they did to that person a year ago. How can they just joyfully go about praising God when that's going on? And, and I'm just disenchanted and frustrated because of what I see to be hollow. Maybe that's distracting me. Why should I praise God if he's pleased with that? Maybe I'm just thinking about my sin. How I blew it again this week. And every week I come in here and I'm hoping it's going to be different. And I'm just filled with guilt. And there's all these expectations on me for how I'm supposed to live as a Christian. And I can't measure up. And frankly, I don't feel like singing this morning. Why should I? If my interaction with God, all it ever does is make me realize how bad I am. How can I praise Maybe I'm sitting here wondering if any of this Christianity stuff makes sense at all. You know, who in their right mind would get out of bed early on a Sunday morning to go to church, especially in New England? I mean, we grew out of our religion a long time ago. We've got new and improved gods. They're called sex and money and education and recreation. Now, if I'm getting up early on a Sunday morning, I'm going to the lake. I'm going to the gym. I'm doing something worthwhile. Why would I go and give praise to this God, this God of Christianity? Whatever the particular reason is why we withhold our praise, we do so ultimately because we're convinced that God is not worth it. We're not convinced God is worth our praise, and so we withhold it. We don't value him enough to praise. And when you go to the store and you see a shirt on sale, or if you get onto Amazon, you see a book you like, how do you make the decision of whether or not to spend the money on that shirt or that book? The question is, how much do I value owning it? Is it worth it? That's what we say. Is it worth it to spend that money? So when I'm weighing whether or not I'm going to spend my attention and affection on making much of God verbally and publicly, the question I finally have to answer is, is God worth it? Is he worth me devoting my attention and affection to him? Why should we praise God? That is a big question. That's a big question. And the whole purpose of verses 4 through 19 in this psalm are designed to help us answer that question. Verses 1 through 3 gave us the call to praise. It summoned us to get together and make some noise for God. Verses 4 through 19 now tell us why. They give the basis for our praise. Here's the reason. And there's three parts to it which declare to us that God, our creator and our king, is uniquely and supremely worthy 
of our praise. He is really worth it. That's the message. So first, verses 4 through 5, they give us a general reason to praise God. And it's focused on God's character as it's expressed in his word and his work, in what he says and in what he does. Verse 4. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full, full of his unfailing love. Now, verses 6 through 19 are going to take this general comment and flesh it out with a couple of specifics. But the first reason we praise God and make much of him is because of his worthy character. Because of who he is as that's shown in what he does, in his word and in his work. Listen to the words that describe God here in these verses. Right. True. Faithful, righteous, just, unfailing love. All of that is perfectly true of God and no one else. No one else. No one else is always right. No one else is always true or truthful. No one else is always faithful. Everyone and everything else in this world will let you down at some point. No one else is always faithful. No one else loves righteousness and justice flawlessly. No one else. No one else's love never fails. And we all know what it feels like when someone's love fails. That's not true of God. His love never fails. We can trust God and therefore praise him because of his character. Now, that doesn't always mean that we understand what he's doing, or that everything he does makes sense. Because frankly, it doesn't always make sense. And sometimes life can be pretty painful. Psalms are very honest about that. But if there's one overwhelming shred of evidence that moves me to believe that God's character is always righteous and pure, that he is always working good for his people, for those who love him, if there's one thing that moves me to always believe that, it's this. It's the grace and love of God expressed on the cross. God did not have to save sinners. Okay? He didn't have to do that. God was not obligated to have mercy on humans like us who constantly disobey his rule and deprive him of his glory. He would have been perfectly righteous to gather up the whole lot of his creation and damn the whole thing to hell for their rebellion. God did not have to save us. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died while we were still sinners. If God is willing to love someone so undeserving to that extent, to sending his eternal son, to take the full brunt of his holy anger and wrath against sin on himself in our place, even though we did not deserve it. If God's willing to do that, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt when I don't understand what he's doing. I'm willing to trust that his character is righteous and pure, even though it doesn't make sense to me. 
we can praise God because he's trustworthy, because he's righteous, because of his character. That's the general basis here, but that's fleshed out now in two specific ways. Verses 6 through 9 tell us that we should praise God because he is the all-powerful creator. The all-powerful creator of everything, of the universe. And here, his work, what he does, is accomplished by his word, what he says. Verse 6. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host, by the breath of his mouth. Now, our great temptation is to look at creation and to just kind of dismiss God's power. And therefore to withhold our praise. And our culture has done an amazing job of this. It's been the assumption of the academy and of the education system for the last two centuries that there is no creator. That all we have is nature, natural processes. Nothing is above nature. Nothing supernatural. Uh, at least nothing that the scientific approach can account for since its model of experimentation is limited to working with nature. And this is convenient because if, if we can explain God's existence away, then we don't have to answer to him. We're no longer accountable to him. We can go on pretending that we run the world and doing as we please. And yet, science is not a comprehensive system of knowledge. There, it's not the only way that you can know something is true. It's, it's a very useful. It, science, there's this pervasive myth and there's reasons for it. There's a pervasive myth that somehow science and faith are at odds with each other. I don't get that. Uh, I know many God... We have scientists in this congregation. So that, that myth comes from somewhere. It doesn't come from the Bible, though. You know, understanding how things work. Science can teach us a lot about what is and how things work. It's great. But it cannot teach us where all this stuff came from. It can't answer the question of, where did we get the matter and stuff that science does its work with? Neither can it tell us where we should be going as, as a human race. It can't answer the what should be uh, in terms of morality and ethics. So it's, it's not a comprehensive system of knowledge. Now, of course, that's a much larger conversation. I'd be happy to grab coffee and talk more about these things later. But I submit to you, the reason that, that science can't account for everything and therefore explain away God is because not everything fits into the realm of nature. There is a creator who is above nature, who created nature and everything in this universe. And according to Psalm 33, he did so by his word. He did so with his powerful word. Just think about that for a minute. Imagine simply saying something and knowing that as you utter that with your breath, that's the very creative force that takes something that does not exist and makes it exist. That's a pretty powerful picture. That's how God made everything. And if that's true, if God is the creator, and we owe him our existence, our breath, our bodies, our lives, then we also owe him our allegiance, and our praise. That's the implication. If God is our creator, then verse 8, we should fear him. We should bow before him in humble submission and joyful reverence. Joyful reverence. Acknowledging him for who he is 
and what he's done, we should obey verses 1 through 3 and make much of God. That's the implication, if God really did make us. So one of the specific reasons that God is worth our praise is that he's our all-powerful creator, and we owe it to him. Second, verses 10 through 19, he is our sovereign and merciful king. He's our sovereign and merciful king. And this flows directly out of the first. If God made us, then God owns us, and he has the right to rule over us. And as our sovereign and merciful king, he is worthy of our praise. Again, the world has, has taken up a loud protest to this claim that God is king. Uh, think back to Psalm 2 several weeks ago, how the nations saw God's reign as oppressive, and they wanted to break the chains of his rule and throw them off and run the world themselves. That is alive and well today. So the world protests. They don't want God to be sovereign, and they don't want his help or his mercy. They deny his rightful rule, and they depend upon themselves instead of turning to and trusting in God. And as long as we tarry in this world and walk out our days in this meantime, there's a corner of our hearts that joins in that protest. There's a corner in every one of our hearts. This is illustrated in a poem that I, I read recently. I am the sovereign I want to serve. I am the king I want others to obey. I am the Lord I want to rule my days. Yes, it is true, Father. I want to be you. That pretty much sums it up. We want to be God. Individually, culturally, nationally, globally, we want to be God. And if we're in charge, there's no need to praise him. We get the praise. People make much of us instead. But look at how God's sovereign rule is displayed in verses 10 through 12. And, and listen particularly to how that is contrasted against the nations and the peoples. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen for his inheritance. Whether we like it or not, God is sovereign. He has both the authority to decide how to run the world and the power to make it happen. God is not like the chairman in the recent film, The Adjustment, Bu the Adjustment Bureau, some quasi-divine figure who sits behind closed doors, who has so little control over the world that he has an army of neurotic, angel-like agents running around frantically trying to keep everything on plan. God is not like that. Rather, he has both the authority and the power to be in control. Look at verse 13. He has constant watch over everything. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind, all humanity. Verse 15, the one who made us knows everything we do. He who forms the hearts of all considers everything they do. So our sovereign God has both authority 
and power to control the world. And that is good news for God's people. That is good news for the people he's chosen and saved by his grace. It's a blessing. Verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he's chosen for his, in- his inheritance. God's sovereignty over every detail in life is good news for us. Because he's not just sovereign. He's also good and merciful. He's good and he's merciful. And in his steadfast love, he watches over his people. We want to run the world ourselves. We don't want to need God's mercy. But the reality is we do need it. We all know that, if we're honest. And we should praise God that he makes it available for us. Our own strength is insufficient. Insufficient to deliver us from worldly troubles, let alone eternal troubles. Verses 16 and 17. Picture this beautifully. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. It's not what we can do in and of ourselves to deliver ourselves from either worldly trouble or from eternal trouble, the the holy anger of God against our sin, it's not what we can do, but rather what God has done for us by his grace, according to his sovereign plan, by sending Christ to rescue us from our sin, to rescue us, to give us new life and faith and hope in him. Not because we deserved it, but because of his grace. Because God gives us something wonderful even though we deserve something terrible. Because that's what Christ purchased for us on the cross. Our sovereign and merciful God is able to rescue us and to take care of us. So he is worthy of our praise. Verse 18. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. On those whose hope is in his unfailing love. To deliver them from death and to keep them alive in famine. God is able to rescue and preserve his people as our sovereign and merciful king, and therefore he is uniquely and supremely worthy of our praise. But praise does something to God's people. It's interesting to see how this psalm ends. It starts off with a call to praise. It spends most of its time on the basis of, for praise, but then it ends with what I think is best described as the fruit of praise. Verse 20. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. So, praise makes much of God. That is its aim. But it also does something to God's people. It changes us to believe what we're saying. It changes us in the process of praising. As Paul Tripp describes it, corporate worship is designed to make Jesus more attractive to you than any idol in creation you could ever serve. And as we gather and rehearse 
the greatness and glory of God as we celebrate his trustworthiness, his faithfulness, his steadfast love for us in Christ. By his grace, God takes what we're saying with our lips and he brings it down into our hearts. In our praise, God is even changing us. And that bears fruit in patience, in trust, in hope, and in joy. We're able to wait on God even when this world is falling apart all around us because we know that he's worthy of our praise and our trust and our joy. The praise of our gathered worship fuels our worship the rest of the week. See, praise and worship are not synonymous. Praise is worship, but worship is much larger than praise. Praise is uh, professing with our lips what we believe in our hearts. Worship is living our whole lives according to that, according to the supreme and unique worthiness of God. So praise helps us do that by changing us to make us better worshipers all week long as we make much of God, as we believe increasingly what we say. So the question, back to our question, is God worth it? Is he worth it? Is he worth taking the time to gather together and praise him when I could be at the lake or shopping or at a coffee shop or still in bed? Is he worth it? Is he worthy of me laying down my life every day to serve him in joyful surrender? Is he worth it? Is God worthy of my undivided attention and affection and satisfaction and trust and joy and hope? Is he more worthy than what others think of me? Is he great enough for me to take my eyes off my own sin and unworthiness and to put them on the cross where he's dealt with my sin, where he's offered forgiveness in order to free me to make much of him in praise? Is God really worthy of our praise as our sovereign and merciful king and all-powerful creator? And the answer is an unequivocal yes. Yes, God is worth it. And there is nothing else in all creation that can take his place. He's worth it. So let's pray and let's praise him for who he is and what he's done for us in Christ. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love, mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your, your youth is renewed like the eagles. God, may you be made much of in our hearts and with our voices. May we gaze freshly every day at the cross, at that great demonstration of your unfailing love for us, the cross that rescues us that takes unworthy sinners and makes them joyful servants. 
May we really believe it. God, I pray that our praise would not be the vain effort of manufacturing some emotion so that we feel like we're making much of you, but that your spirit would pierce our hearts with the truth of the gospel and the worthiness of your name, and that we would overflow in genuine joy and gratitude and praise. God, may that be true among us, because you are worth it. That's our prayer, Lord, that your name would be lifted high. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.